Today's episode is brought to you by Ruth Gilligan's The Butcher's Blessing, an unforgettable thriller that Evie Wilde calls completely gripping. Set in the gothic wilds of Ireland, the novel tells the story of the butchers, eight fabled men who roam from farm to farm, enacting ancient methods of cattle slaughter, offering a simmering glimpse into the modern tensions that surround these men and their families. Says Colin McCann, Gilligan braids beauty and brutality together in a seamless literary thriller, with plot twists worthy of Tana French and language reminiscent of Thea Obrecht, this young Irish writer has crafted a story that is dark, wild, mythic, unsuspecting, and absolutely riveting. The Butcher's Blessing is out now from Tin House. I have to say, I'm not sure what I would do without this show during the pandemic, during the quarantine, the social distancing, the masking, all the complications of how to come together or not come together to celebrate or to mourn or to mark time and all the isolation. Some of the most memorable moments of connection for me have been across the largest distances with Nikki Finney in South Carolina, with Fernanda Melchor in Puebla, with Jenny Erpenbeck in Berlin, and with today's guest Alice Oswald in Great Britain. And likewise being pushed into a need to reach out to listeners, to ask for people to become listener supporters, has generated so much goodwill, so many great conversations, created so many new connections with people, and deepened pre-existing ones. I just wanted to say thank you for that. One of the practices of connectedness or interconnectedness I've been trying to do more of is creating connections or conversations between episodes. Often that is involved quoting things from past guests to current guests, but increasingly I'm trying to also invite past guests and other writers to ask questions of current guests. You'll see in today's episode that I do that with Alice Oswald twice, once with the poet Forrest Gander, and once with the poet classicist Anne Carson. With Forrest Gander, his question was very connected to Alice Oswald's language and the text of her most recent book, and it led to a really interesting discussion of syntax. Anne Carson's, in contrast, was a question about one specific ancient Greek word, and because the word, at least to someone who doesn't speak Greek, like me, wasn't connected in any immediately obvious way to Alice Oswald's writing, I had no idea whether this question of Anne's, from one poet classicist and irreverent translator to another, would be a generative question or just a curious pit stop or detour to our main conversation. But lucky for all of us, it was a question that really struck a chord for Alice that prompted a really interesting response, one that revealed something new about Alice's self-conception as a poet, and one that led her to continue thinking about her relationship to this Greek word 
after our conversation was over. So much so that she wanted to continue answering it in her contribution to the bonus audio archive by reading a short ballad of hers as an additional partial response to Ann Carson's question. To find out more about the bonus audio archive, to hear Natalie Diaz read Borges, Richard Powers read W.S. Merwin, Jen Bervin, The Letters of Paul Salon, or Jenny Ophel read Mary Rufel, or to find out about the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers. From receiving correspondence from me with each episode, where I discuss what I discovered while preparing for the interview and point listeners to the best things to explore, whether written, recorded, or filmed, after the episode is over. To becoming an early reader at Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out about all of this and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Alice Oswald. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, classicist, and gardener Alice Oswald. Oswald trained as a classicist at New College at Oxford University and studied gardening at the Royal Horticultural Society, but she's principally known as one of our great living poets. Carol Ann Duffy, the Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom, called Alice Oswald the best UK poet now writing, bar none. Art critic Charlotte Runcie poses the broader question in The Telegraph, is Alice Oswald our greatest living poet? And Jeanette Winterson calls Oswald the rightful heir to Ted Hughes and says, Alice Oswald is making a new kind of poetry. There is nothing fancy about it. She is doing the job, simple and enormous, of reworking the model for the 21st century. Alice Oswald is the 46th professor of poetry at Oxford and the first woman to hold the poetry chair in its over 300 years of existence joining the company of the likes of W.H. Auden, Robert Graves, and Seamus Heaney. Alice Oswald's debut collection, The Thing in the Gapstone Style, won the Eric Gregory Award. Her second collection, Dart, won one of the UK's most prestigious poetry prizes, the T.S. Eliot Prize. Her collaborative work 
of Poetry with Etchings by Jessica Greenman, Weeds and Wildflowers won the inaugural Ted Hughes Award. James Wood at The New Yorker called Oswald's sixth collection memorial the most remarkable and affecting book of poetry he encountered that year. Subtitled An Excavation of the Iliad, the New York Times Book Review called Memorial Luminous and a Poem that Blooms Out of Slaughter. Shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, Oswald pulled Memorial from consideration, citing ethical concerns regarding the prize's new hedge fund sponsors. Oswald's follow-up collection, Falling Awake, won both the Griffin Poetry Prize and the Costa Award for Poetry. Alice Oswald is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her most recent collection, a return to an engagement with Homer, this time the Odyssey, in her new book, Nobody, a book that arrives to us in its third form. Nobody in its first iteration was a collaboration with the British watercolorist William Tillyer. The second was a performed version of the poem in collaboration with pianist Joanna McGregor. And now today's version of Nobody, a further revised collection of poems that have shapeshifted along the way. Rosanna Warren calls the radical rereading and revoicing of the Odyssey an oceanic, nameless lyric, a sorrowing, timeless, up-to-the-minute, majestic, goose-fleshed meditation on what it is to be mortal. Maria Crawford for the Financial Times calls nobody a pan to water, to the fluidity of language, and the porousness between beings and stories. Kit Fan for the Poetry Foundation says that unlike the beginning and ending of a river, rainstorm, or more definite form of water, nobody mimics the sea's many contradictions, its rich, full-bodied wateriness, and its violent bodilessness, its solid clockwork tidal pattern, and its radical scattering of solid substances. Ange Mlenko in the New York Review of Books says, every choice in the book is made toward a fluid Dionysian collapse of boundaries, with the illicit lovers in the background propelling not the narrative arc exactly, but the narrative desire, the scale of desire in the face of the universe, or the scale of the universe in the face of desire. Two infinities are somehow trying to come into relationship with each other. This desire encompasses our yearning for language, not only for a present language that will convey this vastness, but for languages that have passed away that might really have done so. Finally, Jeremy Noel Todd for the Sunday Times calls nobody Oswald's most formally freehand work, a fragmentary gathering of murmurings searching for the excitement of new meaning. Welcome to Between the Covers, Alice Oswald. Thank you very much. Pleased to hear. So I, I would like to talk about nobody in a relational way to your other work, how, how nobody engages with Homer in comparison to Memorial and how nobody evokes and engages with water in comparison to many of your other works. But before we did, I was, I, w- I was thinking we could step back from any particular work of yours and first talk about water and Homer more generally. Because one could look at your, your life's work as a poet as a sustained engagement with water. Most obviously, your, your engagement with the River Dart in your book Dart and the Severn Estuary and a, sever- 
a sleepwalk on the Severn, but also the River Dunt and the River Hebron and Falling Awake. And even in Memorial, the first simile opens with the lines, like a wind murmur begins a rumor of waves. And then later in the poem, the lines, this is water's world and the works of men are vanishing. So, so what is it about water as a writer that returns you to it as an element and as a muse? I think it's a question that I'll never fully answer except with another book perhaps. Um, but I suppose my poetry has always been a, a kind of growing attempt to encounter something that's not myself and that's not like myself. And what I love about water is that it's evidently not human, nor is it animal, nor even vegetable, but it does seem to have a kind of intelligence. It sort of reflects you back and it seems to have a voice, a kind of narrative voice that has a, sometimes has a beginning and end and sometimes throws you into formlessness. So it sort of challenges all my edges and understandings, but also offers me a way of looking at looking, I suppose. Well, in your, your second Oxford lecture is entitled an interview with water. And in it, you say, water is never the same as itself. Rivers can only exist as similarities. And looking at water allows you to exist twice, like you just nodded to that aspect of water. I, I wanted to take this, this question of doubleness and reflectiveness maybe a little further. The first two lines in your first book go, last night without a sound, a ghost of a world laid down on a world. And the epigraph from even Il Ilyich in your second book, Dart, water always comes with an ego and an alter ego. And you've described the 215 extended similes in the Iliad as almost an entire second hallucinated poem hovering over and above the main poem, that the extended simile is Homer's particular doubled over style of thinking. So I was, I was hoping maybe you could, you could talk a little more about um, the suggested similarity between water's reflectiveness and that of human reflectiveness, that perhaps there's something about water that tells us about thinking um, or tells us about the human mind and that there's something about thinking itself that might be doubled over? Yes, I think that's exactly it, uh, that we seem to exist as bodies and minds. And that's always slightly troubled me that I can't quite make them be the same thing. So I always have two narratives going on, and it's extraordinary the way the mind is floating around seemingly quite untethered, and yet the body has all these laws like gravity and... Um, limit and size and uh, hunger that it's obeying. So how those two interact and how they come to define what it is to be human is again, I'm kind of wary of using the verb think because I don't think poetry is necessarily about thinking, but it sort of gets hold of questions and reveals them as questions and then reveals what's underneath them and then what's underneath that. So I suppose each book kind of tries to peel away a layer of that problem and present it again. Mm. Well, if we were to talk about a, a Homeric approach, maybe not a Homeric way of thinking, but a Homeric mind or body set that feels like informs your writing, 
to me, even when you're not writing an engagement with Homer, in, in one of your, used to write a column for the New Statesman, and in one of those columns titled The Unbearable Brightness of Speaking, you say, if you put a real leaf and a silk leaf side by side, you'll see something of the difference between Homer's poetry and anyone else's. There seem to be real leaves still alive in the Iliad, real animals, real people, real light attending everything. Good to put it like this, ancient writers represent real existence, whereas we usually present its effects. And similarly, in that same piece, when you talk about reading the Odyssey in Greek as a teenager, you say, what impressed me was the unbossiness of Homer's language, an absence of authority that allowed everything in the poem to be strongly and strangely itself. And it feels like all through discussions you've had on your own writing, it seems like there's a way you're trying to break out and away from you, break out and away from the self, but also to break out and away from language to a, a thing in and of itself and yet somehow paradoxically bring that realness back into language. So could you orient us a little bit more to this impulse and the way you see it relating to Homer? I suppose I was very excited right from the start to sort of feel that Homer doesn't necessarily come from one self. And for me, when I'm thinking about the difference between epic and lyric, it is you know, you can define them in many ways and Aristotle had his particular definition. But for me, what is interesting is that it's not necessarily bound to oneself. And that, that means it escapes from the sort of solipsism that I think creeps into lyric poetry, that you can become sort of stifled by one mood, one point of view. And for me, that extends to thinking itself. That's why I have an anxiety about thinking because it feels as if it's put in one person's skull. Whereas Homer's poems, because they have simply been eroded into their way of being by being passed from one person to another, they somehow embody a kind of multiple mind and they move out of the sort of clouding and confinement of, of one person's point of view and, and that's I presume why the things are allowed to be themselves they're not themselves as perceived they are themselves in their kind of radiance. Mm. Is your preference for simile over metaphor somehow related to this? Well yeah and I, I have always felt that simile doesn't capture an object it particularly the extended simile that Homer goes in for, it allows an object to sort of grow away from the comparison. Uh, whereas metaphor is a brilliant way of thinking. You know, it's, it's a lot of metaphor that's already embedded in language and it's, it's a sort of compressed way of understanding the world. But simile, I mean, my, one of my favorite poems actually is the nursery rhyme, um, there was a man of double deed, sowed a garden full of seed. When the seed began to grow, it was like a garden full of snow. When the snow began to melt, it was like a ship without a belt. And it goes on, it sort of just proceeds by simile so that it doesn't create an opinion, but it creates a whole world by moving from the similarity of one thing to another. 
I've rambled there. <laughs> no, I, I think you, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I think you, you compared metaphor to nutrition and simile to pregnancy in one of your talks that, that simile is, is creating us a, a new thing or sprouting a new thing, whereas metaphor is consuming something. Is that, is, is that, yeah. is that right? That's right. And so I think I've always, you know, as a female, one is maybe searching a little bit for types of poetry that, that you can kind of possess and feel are your own. And, and simile has always seemed to me quite a, a female part mm -hmm. of speech. One thing that felt like a kindred notion to some of what you've said about Homer is, is in the introduction to the Ted Hughes bestiary uh, that you assembled and published, um, Ted Hughes thought of his poems as animals. And you quote him when he says, what is it that turns language into an animal? What gives poems a vivid life of their own such that nothing can be added to them or taken away without maiming and perhaps even killing them? And about Homer, you've said both that he takes the imagination seriously as an external and collaborative force, but also that the mind has the limitations of a pigeon, that it travels outside of the head almost like, or, or perhaps very much like a physical thing. Um, can, you, can you talk more about this sort of externality and physicality of the imagination as something that would travel to us and from us like an animal or a bird? It sounds like you, sounds like I might've been talking there about two different ideas in Homer. One of which um, is describing, that's right. It's describing how Athene and Hera uh, move from heaven to earth. I'm just trying to remember this. Um, in Homer, there isn't the sense that the mind is in the skull. They don't really have, um, there isn't a theory of mind. You know, you do a lot of your thinking with your liver or your belly or your heart. Um, and I think that a lot of the thoughts are already externalized. And I'm just trying to remember, sorry, I'm gonna go quiet now. So I'm just trying to remember the, um, I think it's, I think it's two similes I'm thinking about. And one is that, Hera and Athene fly from heaven to the ground as fast as a man thinks. And that man is imagining different places and moving from one to another of those places in his mind. And then later on, it talks about when they move through the lines of battle, the goddesses can barely walk. They're taking little pigeon steps. And I've always loved the connection of those two images that that thought is like these goddesses flying from heaven to earth, but they have this extreme physicality when they get to the earth that they're not actually very good at moving. Um, and I like that. I like that sort of image of both the solidity of thought, you know, the constraint of the body on thought itself, but also the freedom of these goddesses kind of moving through the air. It's a very paradoxical. Yeah, I, I really loved it. I, I, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I think in one conversation you were you segued from that to a notion in Dante about perception or vision maybe around this notion of the of vision being almost like insects traveling from, or maybe not almost like, but literally like uh, physical beings like insects traveling from our oh, eyes yeah. and they travel Just, from our eyes and then gather the information and then travel back to our eyes. I love that. I'm actually, my 
favorite book of Dante is the Paradiso. Most people like Inferno, but it's got the most extraordinary images of how we see in the Paradiso. It's so kind of steeped in light. And this image of the, the colors of the flowers and the spirity visibi, which are these kind of angels, I suppose, that carry colors to and fro. Um, and certainly I, I was thinking a lot and using a lot of Dante in my thinking about the sea and when writing Nobody, uh, because of course, the first thing that happens when you look at the sea is you sort of can't look at it. There's, there's more than will fit into the eye. So I really felt I had need of these spirity visibly to actually kind of carry the momentary colors of the sea into my mind and out again. When you, when you talk about how the different parts of the body might be places of, of the mind or of other things, like it makes me think of other ancient cultures. And I think of how in say Chinese physiology, in ancient Chinese physiology, there were five organs that had different souls. Uh, there wasn't one place with the soul and the consciousness was in the heart. Um, I don't know if that relates at all to ancient, ancient, mm, that's Greek, really ancient Greek, but I did think about, and I wondered about, the repetition of decapitation in your work um, in this light. We we have the head of Orpheus who's singing as it floats down the river Hebron and, and falling awake. And of course there are, there are several decapitations in memorial and in nobody, a fisherman who fishes out a human head referred to as a floating nobody. And in, and then in the interview with water, your your lecture, you say that when you're swimming, water fits around you and you are suspended, seemingly decapitated by reflections. This feels an engagement to me with this idea of resisting uh, both thought trapped in the head and thought perhaps originating in the head. But I, but I wondered if it was also something about the type of poetry that you're, you're striving towards, which is a, a poetry perhaps decapitated, perhaps not about thought at all. Um, I think it's interesting you point that out. And I sometimes wonder whether I'm a very keen swimmer and whether for me, poetry is a kind of equivalent to swimming. And I've often noticed when I swim, the strangeness of the way the body literally turns into a fish, but the head remains human and rather cold and looking around at this strange flat reflective surface. And I'm often very kind of piercingly aware of the difference between my head and my body when I'm swimming. Because mm. I'm not necessarily someone who goes underwater. I love swimming along the surface of rivers. And I think that perhaps my poems do feel a need to convey that continued separation of the head remaining human and the body becoming animal or plant or mineral or whatever it can be. And in some way, I suppose I'm trying to find rhythms that will in some way heal that divide. I love that. I want to, I want to take this before we go to nobody itself. I, I wanted to uh, talk about an interview that was, that particularly grabbed me because it was at a time when you were, I think, still imagining what nobody might be. And it was an interview back in 2014 with Max Porter and in the white review and it was Max's enthusiasm when he was on the show about your work that really was my entryway into um, reading your poetry. Um, but back then in, in 2014, 
you had written and published your excavation of the Iliad Memorial and, and your future engagement with the Odyssey seemed both very much on your mind and, and still something you were wondering about. Um, you said at the time that you were thinking of doing something very disloyal to the text, a ballad version that found a dislocated way of thinking that evoked the sea. And in that vein, you said you were intrigued by something that you saw in contemporary American poetry, something that you were fascinated by but couldn't do. And that was the way Americans fit thinking into, the, into their poems, that for you, poetry was, as you've said, about making a thing that has a life of its own, something alive separate from you, but that Americans were thinking within a poem, that they were channeling the essay, that the poem was writing itself in an unfinished moment, and you were wanting to explore it. But as you said then, and as you've said here, you also feel that Homer's transmission of life has always been your your principle to make something living has been your aim and that thinking isn't living. So, so I was hoping to hear your thoughts before we begin talking about nobody, um, about the finished book. When you hear these thoughts that you had prior to writing nobody, uh, do you feel like nobody has invited thinking into it versus being a decapitated, uh, poem it has perhaps in some places tried to capture the sound of thinking while somehow cheating the reader of the end product of thinking mm. maybe john ashbury does something similar although john ashbury is a totally different poet i really love i love the way when you kind of jump into john ashbury you simply got to sort of keep swimming and you get from one kind of semi-statement to another and you're not quite sure where you've been at the end of it but you do feel like you've been inside thinking that hasn't taken you anywhere and perhaps some of that is in nobody I certainly did a huge amount of thinking when I was writing it but I rather tried to interrupt every thought that I began to express and so the real thought I think is in some way in the grammar of the poem rather than the statements and the way that the grammar will sort of, uh, as it were, splash something in the face of thought. So it will set out to think and then twist it or turn it or, or flip it backwards in a way that I think is quite frustrating for some readers. Maybe a good place to start with orientness to nobody as a project is uh, in comparison to Memorial. Both of them either remove the main narrative or make it uh, something in the background, in the distance, or perhaps subterranean. Um, but Memorial is full of names and particulars of the war dead, even as the main narrative of the Iliad is, is evacuated from it. But Nobody is largely absent names in the main text. So tell us the tell us the story of the nobody, the poet who is the who is the main, if not only, portal into your Odyssey. Well, there is this unnamed poet in the Odyssey who was left by Agamemnon in charge of his wife to make sure that she wasn't unfaithful, 
And once Agamemnon was away at war, Aegisthus, as everybody knows, started to court Clytemnestra. And she wouldn't give in because she said she knew that Agamemnon had left this poet spy on her. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. I've taken him over and abandoned him on a stony island so we can get on and have an affair. And I've just always loved that tiny little kind of matchbox story that's embedded in the Odyssey. We don't hear anything else about this poet. Uh, we just imagine him inside his own Odyssey, left on this rock. And of course, his story is much more the Oresteia rather than the Odyssey. He's a member of Agamemnon's household. He's been in all the kind of decadent, rotting marriage and uh, adultery that's been happening there. And so for him, he's had to inhabit a kind of reverse Odyssey. Uh, so where I think that the Odyssey is supremely the most beautiful love poem, uh, it's about a kind of, you know, it, it, it's uh, a sort of epithalamion, I suppose. It, it starts with this idea of the marriage of Penelope and Odysseus, and it gets put on hold for 20 years, and then they're restored to each other at the end. And it's this beautiful arc of complications that are then resolved at the end of the poem but within it it's got a reverse image which is the Oresteia and obviously that's what drew Aeschylus to write his extraordinary trilogy and I love it that it all focuses on this unnamed sort of negative of a human left on an island. Do you see this inverted odyssey the the story of this poet and of Agamemnon and his future death um do you see this as similar to the hallucinated second poem in Memorial that that hovers over the, the main poem? That's a really interesting question. Uh, yes, in some ways, I think that's a good description of it. I think they both have sort of mirror image poems. Uh, I mean, the thing about Homer is any point you enter any of those poems, they're so constructed, it's like kind of getting inside a diamond. Everything reflects everything else. So I could say that the Iliad and the Odyssey are reverse images of each other, or I could say that the similes are a kind of reverse Iliad, or I could say that the Oresteia is embedded in the Odyssey as a reverse Odyssey. So I think they have infinite opposites, both of those poems. Mm. Um, and it's one of the joys of reading them is that you, you find you find that you're always kind of in the center of the poem at, at whatever point you enter it. Maybe this is a good time to hear a little bit of, of nobody. Um, if you're okay with it, I've picked out a couple short places. Mm -hmm. So the first one for now would be um, 16 to 21. Okay. Yeah. So this is sort of a dawnish moment. So we floated out of sight into the unmarked air, and only our voices survived like thistle seed flying this way and that. A blue came over us, a blue cloud whose brown shadow goose fleshed the sea. The ship, after a little rush, stopped moving, the wind with a swivelling sound began to rise, and here I am still divided in my decision whether to heave to or keep going under half sail, but the water is in my thinking now. I remember the mast pole, broken by a gust, 
severed my two minds separate, and my body flopped like a diver over the side. Then came the invisible, then the visible rain, then icy and razor-sharp, then green, then dawn, who always wakes behind net curtains, and her watercolour character changes shade quickly like new leaves. She is excitable, then shy, then coppery-pink, and raking her fingers around finds bits of clothing and bones. How strange, she says, among those better worlds underwater, where the cold of swimming is no different from the clear of looking. There are people still going about their work, unfurling sails and loosening knots. It's as if they didn't know they were drowned. It's as if I, blinded by my own surface, have to keep moving over seemingly endless yellowness, have to keep moving over seemingly endless yellowness. How does the dawn trawler call out to the night trawler when they pass each other on the black and white water? There are said to be microscopic insects in the eye who speak Greek, and these invisible ambassadors of vision never see themselves but fly at flat surfaces and back again, with pigment caught in their shivering hair-like receptors. And this is how the weather gets taken to and fro, and the waves pass each other from one colour to the next, and sometimes mist, a kind of stupefied rain, slumps over the water like a teenager, and sometimes the sun returns, whose gold death mask, with its metallic stare, seems to be blinking. Two fishermen rowing across saw something jagged and disturbing, the long drawn out now of a teenager. Pale green and full of unripe hope, he had dressed himself in wings. This is exciting. I like the angle of attack when these graded feathers, glued in their waxy grooves, begin to swim the air. Winding his giddiness up and up, carrying his steadfast, sceptical stare right to the summit of sight, he noticed suddenly his fate had been found out, and flapping his arms, flushed, and almost glad to give up, he began to fall. What a relief to hear his flesh, with hair and clothes, flaring backwards like a last-minute flower, hit the sea, and finally understand itself, his human salt already at ease in the ocean salt, and the white, silk-like substance of exhaustion blending with the water, if only, if only my eyes could sink under the surface, and join those mackerel shoals in their matching suits, whose shivering inner selves, all intermirrored, all in agreement with water, wear the same wings. We've been listening to Alice Oswald read from her latest book, Nobody. It feels like there's many ways we can think about the title, Nobody. One is that you're telling the story from the point of view of this unnamed exiled poet, a nobody. Uh, another is the alias that Odysseus calls himself to deceive the Cyclops, often translated as nobody. But then also, I think about how you say that in Homeric tradition, that when you recite a character, you not only become that character, but that when you sing a poem, you join the chorus of any poet that has sung it before you, that a poet is a collective and not an individual. And so in a way, in this framing, all poets are nobodies, not just the nameless exiled ones. But 
lastly, I was thinking about Homer himself, which you alluded to earlier, who may or may not be one person, who may very well be a collective himself, that literally Homer might be no one or no one body or, or nobody. Um, does the title nobody um, nod to some of these elements? Absolutely, yeah. I think you've, you've got them all except for one, which is that it also nods to the sea, which in Homer is described as, well, has many adjectives, but one of them is that it's the unfenced place or the, the unlimited, the undefined, the unfinished, if you like. And so for me, that was also the feeling that the sea itself is the nobody that all the poets also are. I mean, when, when, when we read Dart, for instance, or Sleepwalk on the Severn, there is much more of a, a narrative through line that's more on the surface. And I wondered if that was part of the quality of a river versus the sea, um, that a river might lend itself more to story, um, going from, much like you do, going from the source to the ocean and collecting the murmurings of the river through the testimonies of the people who are interacting with it for better or worse along the way. Um, whereas the sea doesn't have that, that sense of, of direction or direction that feels, uh, comprehensible to the human. Is that, is that informing in some ways, the ways in which you want to place or, or not place the narrative of the Odyssey within nobody? Yes, very much. I mean, I always, I suppose, because I'm interested in kind of non-conventional forms. I mean, I love conventional forms as well in poetry, but I tend to try to get my imagination so steeped in whatever it is I'm writing about that in some way the form will reflect the form of my subject. And I kind of knew that it was going to be... Uh, a pretty impossible, excessive enterprise to start to write about the sea. And I put it off, you may notice the dark gets as far as the sea, but doesn't really attempt uh, to go into it. And I sort of avoided it for many years because I knew it was going to have to be a sort of terrifying and formless poem if I ever wrote it. Uh, but these things always happen by chance. And I happened to get a commission to a company to uh, collaborate with a a watercolor artist, uh, and so somehow the poem kind of crept up on me before I knew where I was. If that answers your question, it rambles a bit. <laughs> no, um, I, I I just want to stay with this river versus sea for one moment more, um, because this this difference between potentially between the river and the sea, I thought of when I was listening to your most recent Oxford lecture, where you were redefining the notion of the epic, um, not as being Aristotle's definition, which was a narrative poem and heroic examiner, but rather that an epic in your approach being the art of lines or phrases where each line is allowed to be surrounded by silence. And then under this definition, you said that Paradise Lost would be a lyric poem, not an epic one because of its continuity. And that made me wonder if perhaps Paradise Lost would be more like a book engaging with a river in that sense than a book engaging with the epicness of the sea where a poet is shouting into the silence while a being abandoned on a 
rock. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a pretty good appraisal of it. And as I kind of wind up saying in that lecture, you know, you shouldn't really take either lyric or epic to its extreme. And I think nobody is as far as I'd want to go in kind of the edgelessness of epic. Uh, I think that um, rivers are much easier to manage. You know, the human mind wants story and there's only a, you can only go so far in, in, in cheating someone of meaning and story. Um, so, yeah, but then, you know, I live in a country surrounded by the sea, so you have to engage with it at some point. <laughs> well, let's, let's um, stay with this notion of um, the human wanting story. And also what you said earlier about um, you wanting to capture the sound of thinking in this, but not necessarily the end product. Because you said in your conversation with Kit Fan for the Poetry Foundation that you felt like nobody was unfair as a poem because it tries to drown the reader and that you wanted to construct a grammar that cheats the reader of meaning. I was just hoping maybe we could stay with that a little more. If you could talk a little bit more about um, drowning the reader and and frustrating intentionally frustrating the reader's desire for comprehension. I suppose um, if you spend a lot of time outdoors, and I worked for a long time as a gardener, you develop a love of the kind of assault and interruption that goes on when you are out in the natural world. So the thing of being incapable of carrying your own meaning beyond the meaning of the grass, the weeds, the wind, the rain, the mud, uh, is something that I developed a liking for, I suppose. And I have not really wanted to make poems that prioritize my human meaning above the meanings that are going on around me. Mm. So I love meaning, but I like meaning to be interrupted before it gets too smug, I think. Well, I think you rightly said at one point that viewers of visual art are much more tolerant of incomprehension, of being in engagement with a, a work of art that they don't understand. Um, and maybe it's they're less signaled to look for understanding when words aren't involved. And I, I know, as you again, as you mentioned, that this book was originally constructed in, in engagement with William Tillier, the abstract watercolorist. So could you talk a little bit about the collaboration you had with him um, and what that looked like? I was very interested in his actual process where he sort of spills or splodges water onto high-quality paper and observes the way it moves. He sometimes builds kind of fortifications and edges that the water can uh, react against. And it seemed to me that he was rather beautifully unbossily again, which is the word I've always liked, um, allowing water to kind of reveal to him its own character without him necessarily telling water what it is. Uh, and so I wanted to find an equivalent kind of smudging and blurring in my own poem that was going to accompany it. And I was also really interested to be thinking about colour because 
I'd always seen myself in some way as a kind of lines artist. I, I love the line unit. I love to think about um, human sentences and human phrases and how they how they react with the line and what you're visually doing when you break a line. Um, and I saw myself, I have seen myself previously, I suppose, in making kind of very clear lines that um, use perhaps a sort of, I suppose I kind of saw myself as a black and white poet up to that point. Mm. And then I wanted to think hard about color and how one might introduce color into one's ways of thinking. So I suppose I did quite a lot of reading up about sort of Kandinsky's approach to color. And um, I'm very interested anyway in the different theories that have been put forth about Homer's sense of color. So looking at the way a painter uses color and I corresponded with him, you know, I might write him one week and say, can you tell me a bit about white? I don't really know what white is. And he would write back about what types of pigments he would use to make white or whether he would just leave a white space on the page. Um, we thought a lot about the color blue and the color purple and none of that necessarily made its way into the poem, but it gave a particular flavor of smudge and blurriness and I suppose the interesting thing in color is the fact that there aren't edges between colors. They kind of blur into each other and, you know, blue is nearly green, which is nearly yellow. Mm. And that I think had an effect on my ways of thinking about language. I became less kind of clipped and constrained in my thinking about how sentences should relate to each other. I sort of made a connection between the way you wanted to betray the epic and the way he would pierce or fray or slice paper surfaces um, that he's he's troubling or or changing or or um, removing the very um, the very basis of what most people would be leaving undisturbed yeah I love that I, I like that when suddenly in his paintings you might see the kind of framework of the actual making of the canvas behind it. Um, and that's something that I think Anne Carson has talked about in some of her essays, that tendency that you really feel in Greek that the language is a veil and that you're kind of peeling back the veil and revealing things underneath. Uh, and I like that as a sort of as a sort of method that you you kind of make a make a skin or surface or screen and then you cut it and you find something underneath it. You've mentioned that you you often start a poem using Paul Clay's line drawing exercises from his sketchbook. Um, I don't know if that's a new thing with since this collaboration with Tillier or 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 a longstanding thing. But what tell me a little bit about these line drawing exercises from him and what um, what that does for you as a way to into uh, beginning a poem. Well, actually, it was very particularly I started when I was collaborating with Tilia, I wanted to understand the visual imagination because I'm not particularly educated about uh, the art world. So I started to um, 
I would start a section of the poem by seeing it as an abstract image in my head and then trying to translate that onto the page. And that would start, um, initially it, it started as a line and then I would start with colors. And it was when I'd sort of felt that I'd translated the feeling in my head onto the page, I would then add words to that uh, in order to sort of create the poem. So I was, I was sort of trying, I suppose, to look at the poem through Tilia's eyes uh, and, then, and then to kind of translate the image I had into a text. But I do anyway, I mean, I love, I love to draw the, the feeling of the sound that I can hear in my head before I write something. So I will anyway often start a poem with these kind of curled loops and phrases that go across the page, or I might get a few words and then I'll just finish it with a line. And the process is, is to try and hear what it is that I've drawn. Well, that made me think of, I, I don't know if I, I can quote it directly, but you went on a walk with one journalist at one point and you were talking about how you'd want to put your eye behind the flower, for instance, that you'd want to try to see from the point of view of the flower. It sounds like maybe that's what you're doing with the watercolorist also. Yes, a little bit, except that I needed to keep my eye not really, I mean, I wouldn't say nobody is a portrait of the watercolorist. It's that I was kind of hearing his method, but I was still really trying to look at the sea. Yes, um, of course. And so it was just a, different way in I suppose I think it's important as a writer as you get older and older to try and find new processes I suppose because you can get you can get very kind of um you know stuck in in ways that you've used before that that you know will work well to stay with color one more one more beat you you've said that the rhapsodes when they sang Homer's poems, they would wear blue when they recited the Odyssey and red when they recited the Iliad. Yet to me as a reader of nobody, it felt like green might be the ruling color and perhaps with purple as a close second. And I didn't know if that rang true to you, but was curious to hear more specifically about color and nobody, um, whether that be about green or another color. Yeah, I think you're right to spot green. I, I mean, for me, I've, going back to that idea of the Odyssey and Iliad being kind of reverse images of each other, I've always felt that the Iliad is the sort of the color of blood. It's this kind of poem about the body and death. And the Odyssey is this unbelievably growing, living, leaf-like poem. Um, and more than anything it just makes me feel the energy of the growing world uh the feeling of you know what england is like in the spring um actually part of the time when i was writing it i was working in a, a nursery and i would um as in a plant nursery and i can remember the thing of, of going into the greenhouses there and just that feeling of yeah this is exactly what it feels like to read the odyssey hundreds of different sort of growing forms bursting at you from all around. Uh, so yes, that, that kind of energy of growth and metamorphosis is for me very much in Odyssey. Well, let's hear another um, 
excerpt from from nobody. Um, this time I was thinking perhaps 30 to 33. When trees take over an island that say so all at once, some in pigeon, some in pollen with a coniferous hiss, and run to the shore shouting for more light, and the sun drops its soft coverlet over their heads, and owls and hawks and long-beat sea-crows flash to and fro like spirits of sight whose work is on the water, where the massless mind undulates the intervening air, shading it blue and thinking, I wish I was there or there. A goddess or fog-shape in full wedding dress sulks in that loneliness. What a winter creature whose lover loathes the everlasting clouds of her and sits in tears, staring at the pleasure-crinkled sea. But she, as if a dash of hope discoloured her sight, stands waiting the way a spider, when it wishes to travel, simply lets out a silken aerial, electrostatically alert through every hair to the least shift of the ionosphere. At last it lifts on tiptoe, and lovely to behold, like a bare twig, it begins to blow wherever the wind will take it, but the wind is the most distracted messenger I know. Whereupon the water turned in its cloak, and shook itself into flames, and burned itself into fur, and tore itself into flesh, and told everything, and instantly shrank into polythene, and withered, and bloomed, and resolved to be less faltering, and failed, and became a jellyfish, a mere weakness of water, a morsel of ice, a glamour of oil, and became a fish smell, and then a rotting seal, and then an old mottled man full of mood swings, forgetting his name, and twisting his hands, denying and distorting, and thinking ill of everything. He snapped himself into sticks, and burst into leaves, which fell back down again as water, blue-green and black shine with white lining, and blinked himself into thousands of self-seeing eyes, like a piece of writhing paper in five seconds of fire, destroying its light with its light. And so the sun brought measurement to everything, all but the sea, frightened of its own stupidity, and on every cliffside luminous lilies made their escape through stones, whose swinging stems were merely the lowest ruffling hems of the passing of spring, and above them flying in verse in time with the wind. been listening to Alice Oswald read from her latest book of poetry, Nobody. In the spirit of this reading, and, and nobody in general, I wanted to switch to a, another topic that infuses your work, and that is the process of erosion. Erosion by water, erosion by wind, erosion by light. Um, the topic of your first Oxford lecture, but also something that feels very present in nobody. You, you said in one interview that the anonymity you were striving after for this book was inspired by eroded cycladic sculptures, sculptures where the features had been nearly washed away. And I was hoping you could talk about erosion in relationship to this and to the text. Well, I suppose that comes back to your question about thinking. The poem, I think, conveys a kind of eroded thinking. It's as if the thoughts have had reality kind of washing away at them. Um, so a sentence sets out and then gets blown in another direction. And erosion is important to me in that I think poetry has a particular sort of duty and relationship 
towards time. Uh, poems are sort of miniature human clocks, I think. They, you know, they're, they're full of timekeeping in the way that a piece of music is full of timekeeping. Um, and in some way they, they set their own time, but they need to be awake to actual time moving around them. So a poem has to kind of offer itself up to the erosion that's going on in the world. Um, and nobody more than any of my poems, I think, gives in completely to that kind of force of erosion, uh, where I would normally try to sort of maintain some kind of uh, human presence in the face of it. I think nobody allows itself to get weathered to, yeah, to a kind of cycladic blankness. Well, this this talk of erosion and time makes me think of that famous Marguerite Yorsenar essay, That Mighty Sculptor Time. Um, I'm just going to read a, a couple of lines from it. On the day when a statue is finished, its life, in a certain sense, begins. The first phase in which it has been brought by means of the sculptor's efforts out of the block of stone into human shape is over. A second phase stretching across the course of centuries through alternations of adoration, admiration, love, hatred, and indifference, and successive degrees of erosion and attrition will bit by bit return it to the state of unformed mineral mass out of which its sculptor had taken it. And I was thinking of this when I encountered your interview with Claire Armistead, where you said you think of your poems less as poems than as sound carvings, which made me think that the sound these poems was make, were making, the sound these poems were making is eating away at something, which then by extension suggests that both the blank page and silence are not really absences in this framing at all, but presences. Yeah, I think that's, I like that. I, I've always felt that in some way, a poem is, is really a framing of its silences and that the kind of the musical art of poetry is all about leading you to those silences in a way that you hear them where normally one doesn't necessarily hear a silence or an absence. Um, so it, both the sound is eating away at the silence, but then also the sounds are in their own way, sort of erosions made. So as it were, it's it, my voice, I let my voice get kind of blown around by by the information it's taken in, if you like. So the feeling of not quite holding your own. Um, I mean, I, I hate reading poems outdoors. I'm often asked to do it, but I, but I do kind of rather like that thing that the voice just gets very small um, and bits of your words blow away. So I, I think that's, that's perhaps an effect that sounds in my poems aim for. Well, let me ask you something about uh, Homer's syntax that you've said in light of sound carvings being a uh, description of, of your poems. You said about Homer's syntax, the tendency of his grammar is therefore cumulative like a cairn. 
Each clause is a separable unit. It might be placed loosely on another and held there with a quick connective, but it never loses its essential singleness, which is why you often find that one end of his sentence turns away from the other. On the one hand, this feels like a process of accretion rather than erosion and accumulation, but the, but the singleness and the separateness of each component and that each is surrounded by silence of the white page made me wonder if, if perhaps this accumulation is the product of erosion, like I imagine the scree that builds at the, at the bottom of a cliffside of all the, the piles of rocks that are single but also part of this erosive process. Well, I think perhaps what's exciting about coma is that two forces are kind of working together. There is the eroding and ed editing force of the time and, and, and the tradition where anything that's not worthwhile is going to be forgotten. And that's why the poems have this kind of amazing, bright quality to them, because anything that hasn't worked has just been dropped away. Um, but then again, there is also, I think, a power in the other direction of um, the, particularly, I think, the similes are examples of individual poets coming up with brilliant images to help them remember or describe a situation. Uh, and those work in the other way. You know, they, they simply can't be forgotten. They kind of nest in the mind and, and carry on sort of multiplying there. So I think Homer is a combination of erosion and creation. And, and can you talk a little bit about, maybe in this light, can you talk a little bit about punctuation, uh, specifically in Nobody, the, the absence of punctuation, and maybe how that might be related to this, this singleness that you, this essential singleness that you uh, mention in Homer's syntax? Well, I suppose there are kind of two approaches to that question. One is to say that there is punctuation. It, it's just that I'm using the line ends themselves as punctuation. Um, and sometimes I think that the only way to get people to notice the end of the line is to take out all other punctuation and then they will realize they need it. Uh, because I've often been kind of, well, early on, I used to get quite frustrated by hearing people read my poems and not notice what was happening at the line end. Um, I suppose that I, um, I'm very interested in what happens when you remove formal constraints from poetry. So having sort of started out writing almost only kind of sonnets and ballads, uh, for me, was a sort of vertigo when I decided to see what happened if I took away those very kind of strict metrical forms. And the need to find something that was as binding as a sonnet form or a ballad form, where if you remove one word, the whole thing collapses, uh, meant that I felt that the only thing that could take the place of that was grammar itself. So, I started to try to make tunes out of, out of the way a sentence sounds grammatically. And the only way to show people I was doing that, I think, was to leave out the kind of punctuation that, that 
sort of conceals that fact. So to a certain extent, my poems as they've gone along have used less and less punctuation in order to draw attention to the fact that the tunes are, are there in the syntax. Um, but in Nobody, I suppose there was also just the feeling that, that the punctuation had kind of been washed away. And certainly in, well, you know, Homer originally wasn't written down, so there wouldn't be punctuation there. And the original transcriptions of poems don't have punctuation either. So there's a sort of feeling of trying to move back towards what a sound is before it's been codified into a, a novel or a speech or an essay. Yeah. Well, your answer to Ted Hughes's question about what would make a poem an animal, what would make a poem alive, was for you in Hughes's case, the percussion in his poetry. And, and I reached out to several poets to invite them to ask questions to you. And, and one of them was Forrest Gander. And, and he wanted to ask you a question about certain effects that are produced in your syntax to make your poetry alive. And it wouldn't surprise me if this is also question of erosion too, both because he uses the word undercutting in his question and because he has a background in geology. But either way, Forrest said the following, um, quote, one of the things about Alice's work that makes my jaw drop is how she'll undercut her own lyricism and perhaps the Latinate richness of her language with old English Anglo-Saxon words. He then selected um, five lines from Nobody as one example, which I'll read, and um, forgive me if I don't read them well. Um, but the gods know everything. They sent a virus fluttering after the ship, and seven days later, she dropped like a dead bird into the bilge. Four sailors had to swing her over the side and the water with all its claws and eaters closed over her. Forrest continued by saying, claws and eaters is so unexpected and metonymic and seems to keep the tone from getting grand. So his question for you is, in what ways do you think about adjusting the tone of your poems in regard to drawing from an Old English or a Latinate-based lexicon? And are you insistently testing the mix? And if so, do you purposely do you purposely deflate the Latinate richness with the grounding of Anglo-Saxon? Lovely question. Uh, and I think that most of that is probably happening sort of unconsciously on the level of the ear, um, that I, I like lines that trickle and you need kind of a, a number of syllables if you're going to trickle. But I also like kind of crashes and collisions and it's great to have a good supply of monosyllables to make those kind of jarring crashes and collisions. Um, but I do, I am someone who, uh, I mean, I hate flying. <laughs> I like to have my feet on the ground and I like to kind of check that the ground's there. And so for me, there is a beautiful kind of, um, just a, a lovely heaviness to monosyllabic words that I feel mostly my sentences need that, that kind of, sandy weight in the bottom of them um so it's it's not it's it doesn't have the status of a thought or a decision uh but my particular taste 
is for those kind of earthy words that will tie the kind of Latin polysyllables so that they don't fly off. Hmm. Well, to stay, to stay with your word choice for a little bit longer, um, I'm going to quote Kit Fan again from your, your, his review of Nobody. And he says, in her translation of Aeschylus, Anne Carson argues that everywhere in Agamemnon, there is a leakage of the metaphorical into the literal and the literal into the metaphorical. Images echo, overlap, and interlock. Words are coined by pressing old words together into new compounds. For instance, day-visible, dream-visible. The same can be said of Oswald's Nobody. The book is populated with at least 113 hyphenated words, as if invoking the protean power of the sea has enabled the poet to push etymological and morphological boundaries by blending and clashing unlikely nouns, adjectives, and adverbs. He then lists examples including sea film, skylids, bloodshade, goose-fleshed, ghost grace. Talk, talk to us a little bit about hyphens. Um, I think my editor forced me to put hyphens in. Oh, really? I quite, I quite like the, I quite like words that that are obviously kind of jammed together and and working together, but yeah. I don't always hyphenate them. Uh, that may not be right, but I have a sort of recollection that some of those words actually weren't even two separate words. I'd actually made them into one word, and they were pulled apart into hyphenated words. So. It was a, I had a kind of lovely feeling of rush when I was writing Nobody that I wanted in a way to sort of trust my first impressions and grab uh, words that wouldn't always go together uh, in order to sort of convey the the sort of the motion of the sea, I suppose. So um, rather than sort of sitting with the separate words that one has grown used to it was lovely to sort of chuck things together and of course the the idea of proteus as in some way the god of this poem was very much in my mind and proteus shifts shape and that i think was sort of the spirit of the work of that poem was to allow words to sort of instantly shift into something else as you try to speak them well while we were talking about Anne Carson, I wanted to ask you a question about translation, because I think of both of you not only as classicists, but as irreverent translators. And, and you said in your, your preface to Memorial that your translation of the Iliad was more of a translucence than a translation, that you were writing through the Greek, not from the Greek. And in your interview with Max Porter in 2014, you were imagining classicists being in an uproar around how you might translate the Odyssey into nobody. And your last Oxford lecture, you say, what about translations of poems that are not easy to translate? What about thought ruptured by astonishment, knowledge limited by mystery? What about epic if epic means a broken melody through which something beyond the human finds expression. And this all made me think of, of some of the writings of editor and translator Johannes Gorenson 
and Joelle McSweeney, who, who helm action books here in, in the States, um, who have deeply considered and reconsidered both what translation is and can be. And what I quoted from you, the, the notion of a of ruptured thought or an epic as a broken melody made me think of some of what they've done with translation, which goes against the notion of aiming for a well-wrought urn. And, and they argue that translations call attention to excess, that no one word can own or be the thing, that instead, and in Gorenson's words, the words vibrate in an excess of unsettled meanings leaking into the English language. And elsewhere he says, if we take translation with its flux and flows, its excesses, too many versions of too many texts by too many authors from too many languages, as an inspiration, nobody can master literature. There is simply too much of it in a state of flux. We have to give up that illusory, critical distance, and the stability it demands, we have to drown in art. And I don't know if that resonates with you or your approach, but I would want to, I, I would love to hear about your translation philosophy specific to nobody, if it's, if it's similarly also a translucence or, or, or some other approach. I think it's not a translucence, really. It's more of a, more of a drowning, um, and a colouring and an excess. I mean, what springs to mind is the idea that um, in Memorial, I was kind of looking through the Greek at the kind of line drawings, almost like on a vase of what was happening. Whereas in Nobody, I'm kind of allowing colour through. And I think that's, that's, for me, the feeling of the difference is the difference in colour and line. Mm. I suppose... And much more so in Nobody, I felt as if I was uh, dealing with material that was still alive and had its had its own kind of autonomous movements that I wasn't even attempting to control, really, um, so that the, the moments of control are smaller than the moments in Memorial. Uh, I try to kind of give a flick of the wrist that, that gets the sentence started and sort of maintain meaning for most of it. And I allow it to sort of fly out of control. That's not an answer to your question. Um, it, it, well, to, to stay with this, this notion of allowing for knowledge limited by mystery or allowing for something beyond us and out of our control, like creating an animal that lives on its own terms in, in the poem or the way you translate Homer's poem. Is it, is that related for you in some way to orality and performance that that Homer's poems were recited from memory, that the Iliad was even composed in performance, um, that e each recitation would never quite be the same as the last? Or even the way you say Ted Hughes isn't performing his poems, but rather being performed by them, that he isn't adding something when he performs them, but that the poems are inhabiting him. Is this at all related in, in some way to um, the way you're approaching translation of the Odyssey here? I, I think it is. And I think it's been sort of, um, you know, my 
my slogan, my principle, my kind of flag has been the idea that an oral tradition is sort of more than whatever is ever written down, that uh, if you perform it, the poem will change. If you, um, if you try to translate it, it's not really the words you're translating, it's something kind of beyond the words. So that idea right the way through has been important for me that a poem is, is kind of more than the written word. There's something beyond it, uh, something excessive and almost annihilating that, that you're sort of hinting at. Um, and that if you fully expressed it, you know, woe betide you, you probably wouldn't survive it. <laughs> well, your, your own performances, which are somewhat rare, but I dare say also somewhat legendary, reciting from memory often in collaboration with another artist or art form, and sometimes with great feats of, of stamina or precision of time, like your your Tithonus, a poem which is precisely 46 minutes long. Could, I, I was hoping maybe you could talk about performance for you. And I noticed that, for instance, um, between us recording this and when it, whenever this airs in December, you're involved in a, a postal poetry performance called Moon Viewing, which is happening on the last day of November at midnight. And I, I, maybe you could talk about that as a as a entryway into performance for you in, in a larger sense. Well, that's a very different kind of performance. That's a lockdown performance. Uh, it's been really strange being away from live performance, which is my whole, you know, passion. Um, and of course, it's been impossible in lockdown. So I had the idea that what you could do was if you couldn't seat people in a theater and have an audience gathered in a space, you could at least gather them in a time. So you could, uh, so I've sent out 500 copies of a poem and people are not allowed to open it until midnight on the 30th of November. Uh, and it's a riddle and they will find the answer to the riddle if they step outside. Um, and I'm also broadcasting at the same time a YouTube uh, little film which is a collaboration with dancers and a composer uh, that will have the same um, that will pose the same riddle so the idea really is that the theater is a moment in time rather than a space yeah and that people can be socially distanced but at least engaged in the same moment of looking up well i i reached out to ann carson to see if she wanted to ask you a question and i reached her in iceland and she had a, a a question for you that I wanted to ask now because it does touch on performance. And I, I don't know if this will produce, um, if this will be a generative question or not. It's not specific to nobody, but it's an interesting one. Um, it's about the ancient Greek word, eidos. Is that how you pronounce it? A-I-D-O-S? Mm -hmm. um, she says, you might ask her what she thinks of this word an aspect of moral life that seems to be vanishing from the world. And then she links it to performance for herself when she says, ask Alice what she thinks of the work of Kazuo Ono, the Japanese dancer, one of the founders of Buto, who I always think of in relationship to this Greek word. Does anything immediately come to mind regarding 
this word for you? She's amazing, Anne Carson. She always asks, you know, that question is, is it's like a whole poem, isn't it? Um, it's an amazing word, Eidos. And I think for me, I felt the need early on to kind of grow towards an understanding of the moral life of poetry. Um, so my kind of, my first poems were more like trying to kind of locate myself in a physical world. And perhaps the sort of trajectory I've been on has been trying to grow towards an understanding of that word, which is, I suppose, to do with how we view ourselves in relation to other humans, what our duties are, how we maintain self-respect or honor. I, I looked up to see whether Anne had written about this word because I was curious why, yeah. she, why she was asking about it. So I'm, I'm going to read you what I found and see if that prompts yeah. any thoughts too. Um, yeah. So these are, one is from her intro to the plays by Euripides and also uh, the second one is from her book, Eros, the Bittersweet. So these are two short excerpts about Eidos. Um, Eidos, shame, is a vast word in Greek. Its lexical equivalents include awe, reverence, respect, self-respect, shamefulness, sense of honor, sobriety, moderation, regard for others, regard for the helpless, compassion, shyness, coyness, scandal, dignity, majesty, majesty. Shame vibrates with honor and also with disgrace, with what is chaste and with what is erotic, with coldness and also with blushing. Shame is felt before the eyes of others and also in facing oneself. And then in her other excerpt, she says, Eidos, shamefastness, is a sort of voltage of decorum discharged between two people approaching one another for the crisis of human contact, an instinctive and mutual sensitivity to the boundary between them. It is the shame suitably felt by a supplicant at the hearth, a guest before his host, youth making way for old age, as well as a shared shyness that radiates between lover and beloved. The proverbial residence of Eidos upon sensitive eyelids is a way of saying that Eidos exploits the power of the glance by withholding it, and also that one must watch one's feet to avoid the misstep called hybris. In erotic contexts, Eidos can demarcate like a third presence, as in a fragment of Sappho that records the overture of a man to a woman. Quote, I want to say something to you, but Eidos prevents me. The static electricity of erotic shame is a very discreet way of marking that two are not one. I am always just so impressed by Anne Carson. I mean, her kind of precision and lyricism and, uh, yeah, she, she is an amazing poet, I think. Um, and thank you for reading those out. I think that if there's a lack in my poetry, I'd probably say it's that I've 
I've found it quite hard to um, tell the stories about human interactions that are part of the subject of poetry. And I do think that the sort of project of, of the imagination is towards uh, what I would say is a kind of justice, if you like. I mean, imagination is about compassion, the, the sort of having the compassion to imagine what it's like to be something else. Uh, and I've spent a hugely long time trying to work out what it's like to be another species. Uh, and I feel as if I'm only now trying to bring that into focus in the human world, uh, partly because I've moved into a city from having lived in the country all my life. Um, so I think that if you are engaged in a career in the imagination, you, you have to, you are kind of forced with each project to sort of take away another veil, if you like. Um, and you, I, you come to a sort of a block with a poem, which you can only go through by sort of understanding something that's not yourself. So I think for me, that's, that's where that word, you know, shame, decency, honor, all those amazing meaning she gives it. Um, I feel I'm kind of only just sort of broaching that word with regard to humans, but I think it's also important me now to have a sense of it with regard to the natural world. And that's maybe where I've kind of focused it in the past, but you know, you can't, you can't get through your life without also addressing the question as it, as it impacts on other humans. Well, I did like the way what I read with her saying that shame is a very discreet way of marking that two are not one. It sort of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, to the doubleness of water. Water allowing us to exist twice. And Homer, like the sea, creating agitated similarity. Um, I was hoping we could go out with one more reading from, from Nobody. There is a harbour where an old sea god sometimes surfaces. Two cliffs keep out the wind. You need no anchor. The water, in fascinated horror, holds your boat. At the far end, a thin-leaved olive casts a kind of evening over a cave, which is water's house where it leads its double life. There are four stone bowls and four stone jars, and the bees of their own accord leave honey there. Salt shapes hang from the roof like giant looms where the tide weaves leathery sea nets. Be amazed by that colour. It is the mind's inmost madness. But the sea itself has no character. Just this horrible thirst goes on creeping over the stones and shrinking away. The sea, she said, and who could ever drain it dry? has so much purple in its caves, the wind at dusk incriminates the waves, and certain fish conceal it in their shells at ear-pressure depth, where the shimmer of headache dwells, and the brain goes dark purple. Who could offend the sea? There is so much water, we might as well waste this ever-replenished fairy-tale stuff. Don't flinch, she said. I want you to walk this carpet. Please, oh please, 
You must be so, so footsore after your ten years' war. You surely deserve a little something. If you take off your shoes, the bare floor will be so cold, so filthily infectious. You should step down, safely, here. That man is doomed. That very second, the swelling bloodshade shows through his skin, even as he bashfully sets his foot down, saying, After all, I'm not nobody. Maybe I deserve a little brighter something than my allotted brightness. No superstition has ever hurt an honest man. Perhaps, after my bath, in my towel, I can walk it again. Inside his lifted foot, in its falling paws, fate feeds on this weakness, and the same massive simplicity cuts through his throat as drips and sways in all these tide-filled caves. The same iridescent swiftness and the same uncertain certainty, either brimming or rippled or swelling over of hollowing water as one thought leads to another. If you stand here on these boulders with your back to the earth, you can see the whole story of the weather, the way the wind brings one shadow after another, but another one always sweeps up behind, and no one can decipher this lucid, short-lived chorus of waves. It is too odd and even, as if trying to remember some perfect prehistoric pattern of spirals. It is too factual, too counterfactual, too copper-blue, too irregular metrical. Listen. Let me tell you what the sea does to those who live by it. First it shrinks, then it hardens and simplifies and half-buries us. And sometimes you find us shivering in museums with tilted feet so that all we can do is lie flat our colourful, suffering faces watered away, we who threw fish lines into these waves and steadied our weight in mastless longboats and breathed in and out the very winds that wrecked us. We've been listening to Alice Oswald read from Nobody. So, so you've said, Alice, that, that you always abandon your gods at the end of writing a book and want a sense of reinvention with the next one. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what is brewing in your imagination around what comes after nobody? I think a kind of a, a pushback of the human against those eroding powers. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and maybe an investigation of Anne Carson's idols. Huh. <laughs> that would be, that would be fascinating. And in relationship with a, with a, classical text, do you think? No, I, I'm quite happy to um, to leave classical text aside for the moment. Uh, I'm finding it really extraordinary to be living in a city really for the first time in my life, um, or I haven't lived this long in a city before. So really, I'm just wanting to kind of settle into that and see what that brings. Well, thank you so much for, for being on Between the Covers, Alice. Thank you very much. We've been listening today to Alice Oswald read from her latest book of poetry, Nobody. Been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. Alice Oswald contributes a two-part reading to the bonus audio archive. The first, 
in homage to my questions to her. She reads a sampling of the impossible questions God poses in the book of Job. In the second, she continues her engagement with Ann Carson's question by reading a short ballad of hers called Emerald that pertains to it. This joins bonus audio from Nikki Finney, C.A. Conrad, Natalie Diaz, Hanif Abdurraqib, Max Porter, Miriam Taves, and many others. Find out more about the bonus audio archive and the other potential benefits of supporting a fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021 at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, and Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Bala in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. And finally, I'd like to thank Inlay Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>